Okay, today is uh, January the, is it the 26th? Already? Man. Okay, today is January the 26th. Now, tomorrow we're going to have our Friday night at the movies, and it's going to be courageous. So if you, I haven't seen it myself, but I heard that it's supposed to be uh, really good, so... Come and get your popcorn and cookies and also a cartoon. We always start with a cartoon. It's my favorite part. Okay, what else? Any more announcements? Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. The opportunity to name privately to God the Father any unconfessed sins which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness. We thank You for Your mighty Word. We thank You that we can understand the whole realm of doctrine if we want to. You give us everything that we need through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we pray that you will help us to focus, that we will be able to put into our long-term memory the things that we learned this evening, for we pray it in Christ's name, amen. We're going to continue with uh, getting the gospel right. I think this is absolutely imperative that we focus on what theologians call apologetics. That means being able to stand firm for the faith. There's hardly any place you can go outside of these walls that you're going to run into people that don't have some really weird ideas about spiritual things, about God, Jesus Christ, you name it. But most of them have one thing in common, that is they try to insert works into God's plan of grace. And so what we're doing is we're looking at the different aspects of how to defend the faith and be alert to all the tactics they use. I've been giving you keys of how to recognize those, whether they are in Reformed theology, that say that you are not really saved unless you persevere. That is their Achilles heel. That's where they really expose themselves because uh, no one can persevere all the time. Even they will acknowledge that. And so when you start to press them with regards to perseverance uh, as to how long do you have to persevere, what does it take to persevere, how many good works must you produce, how many sins must you avoid, they start breaking apart because they've embraced satanic lies. Now, we've been in this area of faith alone because that is the main area that is attacked, faith alone and Christ alone. And there are those who say that you have to repent. Now, I've never seen anyone say that you have to repent and meaning that you have to change your mind about Christ. The way they use that term is you have to feel sorry for your sins, or you have to confess your sins, these type of things. So that's what we have been addressing in the Scriptures. 
And you can turn in your Bible, if you will, to Acts chapter 2, verse 38. I've reworded a few paragraphs here. And I don't know if Carrie's already sent the notes out, but it drives her up the wall when I do this, but I can't help it. When I go back and I look at something and I see that I can word it better, I will word it better even if the notes have already gone out, even if it's on the website. I leave it to others to straighten up my mess. And hopefully, eventually, it will be there right. Acts chapter 2 is a huge chapter because that is when uh, uh, the church age began and there was a lot of things that were happening that people did not understand. And Peter gave them the full scope of what had taken place over the last few days. And that is that they had crucified their Messiah. He convinced them of the fact. And in verse 27 it says that they were pierced to the heart because they understood what he said. They believed what he said. And they said, now what, what must we do? And that's where we pick up Acts 2.38. And Peter said to them, repent, metanoeo, and it means simply to change your mind. But it means to change your mind about Christ, not change your mind about sins. And you may have a temporary uh, period of grieving over the way that you have lived, but it won't be that long. You'll be right back into it. If you don't start growing in grace, learn this, how to fight in the spiritual warfare. Repent. Change your mind about Christ. Now, if you don't have this in your Bible, be sure you insert here. Where it says and, right before and, you want to put a parenthesis. And after Christ, you want to close that parenthesis. This is the syntactical break. Repent is a verb. It's the aorist, active, imperative, second person, plural. And the next verb you see is be baptized, and that is an aorist passive imperative, third person singular. They do not agree. What this means is repent is not modifying baptism. In fact, repent modifies what you see further down the page here, which is shall receive. Notice this is the second person plural. This is the second person plural. So what, what that means in the Greek, they didn't have these uh, marks that we have like parentheses. Uh, they didn't have these grammatical marks, so they would just use the syntax and the grammar to show that this was uh, to be set apart. So essentially what Peter is saying, and Peter said to them, Repent for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the Holy Spirit. But in between here, he we all do this. We'll think of something and right in the middle of a sentence we'll say something that's not related to the rest of it like, I want to say this before I forget it. That's essentially what Peter has done here and the parentheses are here. If you don't understand that, then the next thing you're going to see is repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you're going to have people say, see there, you've got to be water baptized. And this is a water baptism that this is referring to. And they'll be saying that you have to be water baptized to be saved, salvifically that is, and that's simply in the case. We've already gone over this. Here's the changing of the wording I did on this sentence. I have it in yellow. There's a syntactical break in verse 38. Being water baptized is not connected to repenting. I said it earlier that it has nothing to do with it. I think that was too strong. I'd rather say it's not connected to repenting. Repenting is connected to shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
so we've, uh, I'm not going to linger here. We've gone through that. Now here's another wording that I have changed. So, <clears throat> I, oh, what I'm doing here is showing how Paul used repentance. He used the term repentance. Uh, so did Matthew, so did Mark, so did Luke. Uh, they all use the term repentance. And so what I'm asking here is, so why isn't repentance something that must be added to faith in order for one to be saved? Because after all, Paul and Peter and Mark and Matthew and Luke, they all mentioned it in their writings. And here's the answer. Because repentance is implicit in believing the gospel. In other words, when you believe, you, you, all, you already have repented. You changed your mind. When one believes in Jesus Christ, they are in fact repenting through a change of mind about Him, that is, about Christ. So there are some who would say, well, uh, whenever you hear the gospel, that you have to repent. Some will say you have to be, repent of your sins. Changing your mind about sins never changed anyone. You know who, who did that? Who? Judas. Remember, Judas felt really bad. He threw the money back and he was going to give it back. I didn't cut any ice with God. It's not how you feel. It's not that you might change your mind about sins. That changes nothing. You have to change your mind about Christ. Remember, faith has to have the right object. And the object in salvation is Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter... Whether well, you have this much faith or this much faith, it's not the quality or quantity of your faith. It's the object of your faith that saves. We've gone over that, I believe, already. Uh, we've gone over this part already also. That was just tying up some loose ends. Okay, now, um, what about confessing Jesus as Lord? Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Is, it, is that necessary to be saved, to, be, uh, to confess Jesus as Lord? I was talking to Carrie on the way home last Bible class, and I said, you know, I think that what I was teaching about Romans 10, 9, and 10, I think they were understanding it. And I think you, I think you understand it but I don't think that you can, can give it to someone. Understanding it and being able to describe it and explain it to someone else is two different things. So what we're going to do is go over this again, so this time it will solidify in your soul and you will be able to express it in your own words. We're not going to start with verse 8, and we're going to start with verse 1, and I'm going to go through this quickly because we've gone over it before. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire... And my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Now, I said that in context, what Paul is using here, when it says that they be saved, is talking about being delivered. Paul knew that their time was short. He already saw Jews evangelizing Gentiles, or excuse me, other fellow Jews in Gentile languages. So he knew that was a sign that the time was short. He did not want them to be destroyed as a nation. And that's the context, that he did not want his brethren to be dispersed, as which, which happened in, uh, less than 40 years later. 
This does not mean that he didn't want to see him saved. Of course he wanted to see him eternally saved. But in the context here, it's talking about he did not want to see them to be dispersed as a nation because he knew if they didn't change their ways, they were going out. Verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish, excuse me, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. How does one subject themselves to the righteousness of God? Well, they simply believe in Jesus Christ. I won't go over this again, but verses 30 through 33 above in chapter 9 explains how the Gentiles got the righteousness that they submitted themselves to the righteousness of God because when they believed in Jesus Christ, what happens? You receive God's righteousness. And we know that from what verse? Romans 4, 5. I'm going I'm to ask you that until nearly every time I ask you a question, you're going to say, Romans 4, 5. That's what the kids do when they don't know the answer. They'll say, Bible doctrine. <laughs> um, so... The Jews were trying to fulfill the law in order to get God's righteousness, which is impossible. Verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. He was the only one who did. So now the law is a moot issue. Because if we are in Christ, Christ fulfilled the law. We're not worried about fulfilling the Mosaic law. We're not even under the Mosaic law. Christ took care of that for us. Verse 5. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. And you don't want to live under that righteousness. You don't want to live under the law. What that would mean is that you have to obey the law how well? Perfectly. Because if you fall in one spot, 633 laws, and you, you miss one of them, you're guilty of the whole thing according to uh, James. I think it's chapter 4. So, now, verse 6 is where it's going to get interesting. This is setting us up for verse uh, 8 through 13, which is where we're really going. But the righteousness based on faith speaks thus. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend to the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. See, they weren't getting it. They didn't, you don't have to summon Christ up from below or bring Him down in order to acquire this righteousness. Uh, they, they thought that evidently this is what must be what has to happen. Now, in verse 8, this is where your, are your concentration levels cranked up. I want you to get this. Verse 8, but what does it say? What is it? Now, in your, in your margin, if you don't have this already in a concordance, put Deuteronomy 30.14. That's what it's quoting here. For what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. So let's put a bookmark here. Let's go to Deuteronomy 30.14. Put your bookmark there. Deuteronomy 30 and 14. Put a circle around it. 
Round the number. Deuteronomy 13, uh, 30, 14 says, But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. Okay, what word? What is he talking about, a word being in your mouth and in your heart? Well, we have to go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, to see what that word was. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. This is the great Shema. Remember what Shema means? The Hebrews would just take the first word out of something and call it that. The first word here is what? Hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Shema Yitzrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Akkad. I knew that because I heard it so many times because... Uh, <laughs> the colonel used to say that very often, who was my spiritual mentor. Oh, there's a, a man in prison that has been writing me and, and Carrie, and he is, you talk about somebody that is, you could say, on fire for the Lord. And we've sent him my booklets, the colonel's booklets and all this, and he calls the colonel something I've never heard anybody call him before. The Reverend Colonel. <laughs> he said, I love the Reverend Colonel's books. Uh, anyway, okay, what is this talking about? And you shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, even to this day, the Jews repeat this when they go into the synagogue. This is what they're saying. Now, when it says the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, that word one is echad, and it means it can mean one, but it can also mean unique. And this is the meaning here, the context. Jesus Christ is unique. The Jews don't see it that way. They think it's one. God is, our God is one. He's not a trinity. They don't believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. He is one in number. He is one in number, but he's a triunity. They don't believe that. This is really talking about the, the, the Lord is unique. Now, with that under our belt, let's go all the way back to... Romans chapter 10 and verse 8. This will help us understand what he's saying in verse 8. But what does it, Deuteronomy 30, 14, say? The word is in your mouth. What word? The Shema. They would say that every time they went to the synagogue and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Now he says that if you confess with your mouth, they were already confessing with their mouth, weren't they? But it was rote. They were just doing it just like so many religions do today. It's just liturgical. The, a lot of, uh, I, I went to a church one time. I won't say what denomination. doesn't matter. <clears throat> they never opened their Bible. They read everything out of a songbook. And out of the songbook, they had all this responsive reading liturgical stuff. <clears throat> well, that's what the Jews were doing. They would go in there and we'd say this. And what essentially Paul is telling the Romans, look, you don't have to bring Christ up from, or down from above or up from below. What you need to know is already on your mouth, in your mouth. You're already saying it. It's already in your mind. You're already thinking it. But what you have to do is what? Believe it. It meant nothing to them. 
So in verse 9, it says that if you confess... Now, that if is the third-class conditional clause. That's an important one. If, maybe you will and maybe you won't, confess with your mouth that Jesus... Confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. Now, that's one part of this. That's one thing that you must do. Second part, in verse 9, And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you shall be delivered. See, everybody makes this salvific. And we go back to verse 1. You can go back into verse 9. And what he's talking about is an experiential deliverance. That, what, is this, by the way, what is an experiential deliverance? It's a, you know, it's a physical deliverance. He did not want them to be dispersed as a nation. He didn't want the nation to die. Now this is what you can't miss here. If you confess with your mouth, do you have to do that to be eternally saved? No. Do you have to do that in, in order to be experientially delivered? Yes. This is talking about submitting to Christ. Don't miss what he's saying here. He's got two things here that must be done. If Israel was going to be saved, they had to do two things. One of the things they had to do is confess with their mouth that Jesus was Lord, meaning that they would submit to him as deity, as the Messiah. They would submit to him, which is what? Experiential. And they also must, what? Believe that God raised him from the dead. Why are they talking about raising him from the dead? Because he's already risen from the dead. You don't have to raise him up from below or bring him down from above. From above. He is deity. He lives forever and Verse 10. Now, now we're going to see it in chronological order. Verse 10. For with the heart man believes. Now it's talking about belief and it says resulting in what? Righteousness. See, that pulls together what you got over here in chapter 9, verse 30 through 33. The last four verses of that chapter. So when you believe in Jesus Christ, you get God's righteousness. You don't have to worry about trying to work up your own righteousness in order to impress God. With the heart, man believes, resulting in righteousness. That is what? Salvific. That's talking about eternal life there. But we have an and. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in what? Deliverance. Right. This isn't only talking about... See, a lot of people, where they go wrong, they think this is just talking about eternal salvation and you have to confess with your mouth and you also have to believe in your heart. No, this is talking about if you're going to be delivered... You can't be delivered if you're not a believer to begin with, right? But just, just, being just, just believing in, in the Messiah, in Christ, is not going to deliver them as a nation if they continue to be disobedient and not doing the job that God has for them, right? And so you have two things here. Paul is telling them, if you want to be delivered from being dispersed, if you want to continue as a nation, that's in a physical, experiential sense. You have to believe with your heart that Jesus Christ is deity, that God raised him from the dead, and you also have to confess with your mouth, resulting in deliverance. This is how they were going to be delivered. 
Verse 11. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be, some will say, ashamed or put to shame or disappointed. When you believe in Jesus Christ, and this could be, when you believe in Jesus Christ, are you going to ever be disappointed with regards to your eternal destiny? No. That would be the salvific end. What about the other end? When you believe in Jesus Christ, when you trust in Him as you live out your life in an experiential way, are you going to be disappointed then either? No. You're never going to be disappointed either way. And I told you how, how horrible some denominations, the King James says, for whoever believes in Him will not be ashamed. And so when they give the gospel and they have an altar call, they say, okay, if you really believed, then you won't be ashamed to walk this aisle. And that is, I, don't, I wouldn't even say that short of blasphemy. I said, that, that is blasphemy. I'm not saying that everybody has an altar call is, is blasphemous, but I'm saying anybody that makes that a condition in order to be saved, that you have to walk out here in front of everybody. And some people would much rather go before a firing squad than do that. And so they don't walk the aisle. They believed in Christ, and then they go the rest of their life thinking, well, I, I wasn't saved because I, wasn't, I didn't have enough courage to walk the aisle. That's nothing to do with salvation. So if you believe in Him, not, you won't be put to shame. Uh, number 12, uh, verse 12. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord is the Lord of all, abounding in riches, for all who call upon Him. Underline that call upon Him because that's where we ended last time where we're going to take it up in a moment. And I'm going to demonstrate to you that this calling on the Lord is done by believers, not unbelievers. This is your second shot, really about the third shot that you've heard this. Are you all starting to feel comfortable how you could explain to someone who would turn to Romans 10, 9, and 10 and say, you must confess Jesus as, as Lord, you must submit to Him uh, with your mouth or else uh, you won't save. That's something added to faith. Do you understand what he's saying? Here, the whole key thing is, is Paul is not only talking... The whole thrust of this text is experiential. He wants his brethren to be delivered. And the only way they're going to be delivered is by believing in the Messiah and submitting to Him with their mouth saying that Jesus is Lord, submitting to Him. That's the two things that have to happen. And the only reason in verse uh, 8 he's talking about, for, or excuse me, verse 9, he says, for if you confess with your mouth, because he just finished in verse 8 about what they were saying. So he's essentially saying, look, when you go in that synagogue and you're saying the Shema, you have to understand what that's talking about the lord is unique you have to believe that he is the one that god raised from the dead he is deity and you have to submit to him with your mouth not only say it but actually do it in order to be delivered anything short of that and you will not be delivered as a nation i don't know if you got it or not but we're moving on Let's see, we got all this. Uh, here's where we start tonight. <laughs> all that was kind of review. But, boy, i got something really neat here. Something came to me today, a nugget that I'm going to share with you. 
First of all, God knows the heart of men and knows when one has accepted Christ as their Savior without a word being said. Whenever you heard the gospel, whenever you read it, heard it, whatever it was, there was something clicked in your soul and you said, that makes sense, I buy that, I sign on to that, whatever it is, you, you accepted it. When that happened, what did God do? Instantly, He imputes to you His righteousness, eternal life. All these things happen. You don't know it. You don't feel it. But that's when it happened, when, when that occurred. Now, you don't have to say anything. I have a friend that went into uh, prisons, and he went there to witness and teach them. And he said that uh, he finally had to break away from the people that were uh, organizing this because they said you have to tell the prisoners, when you give them the gospel, they have to say a prayer. And they have to say, usually, well, uh, I'm sorry for my sins and I repent of them and uh, I, Jesus, will you come into my heart and all this kind of baloney. The point is, you don't have to say anything because God knows the instant in your soul that you've accepted the gospel, that's when you're eternally saved and you don't have to say a prayer, you don't have to walk an aisle, you don't have to walk, uh, raise your hand, you don't have to say anything. And I, as I was thinking this, I thought, where can I go to give an illustration? And in trying to do that, I found something really neat. Turn your Bible to John chapter 3, verse 14. <clears throat> John chapter 3, verse 14. Or you can look up here. Or you can do both. John chapter 3, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. Y'all got that? Now let me explain what's going on there. John was comparing the time when a brass image of a serpent was lifted up by Moses with Christ being lifted up on the cross. In both cases, salvation was made available. The image of the serpent could save people from dying physically, whereas Christ can save people eternally. The people only had to look at the image of the serpent to be saved. This is in Numbers chapter 21, verses 5 through 9. They didn't have to say anything. So it is when one is eternally saved, faith in Christ is all that is necessary. Nothing has to be said. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, it's talking about the Israelites... I don't know, I've never just really thanked God that I wasn't in that group, but I think it might be a good idea for all of us. You talk about complaining and griping and muttering and sputtering and all the other things. You know what they were mumbling, murmuring about, complaining about? They didn't like the manna that God gave us. We're sick of this food. And so God said, okay. You don't like the food? You want to complain? So he sent poisonous snakes in there and started biting everybody. So they run to Moses. Oh, Moses, we've sinned. And so Moses goes to God and he said, what should I do? And God tells him, okay, get you a... Uh, he, he got some brass and he hammered out a serpent on it. 
He put it on a pole, he put it on a pole and he lifted it up, probably on top of a hill. And everybody that had been bitten by a snake who were about to die, all they had to do, he said, look at the serpent and you'll be saved. Now, he was talking about a physical deliverance. They would be saved physically. Is everybody on board so far? Okay. So, that comes, by the way, right the verse before the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, see? And just as they lifted up the serpent for everyone to be saved by simply looking on it, he says, so Christ was lifted up on a cross. And we can't look and see Christ, but we do the same thing that they did when they looked at the serpent. What did they have to do? They had to believe that they would be delivered, that they'd be saved if they looked at the serpent. And that's what, essentially what we do is when we hear the, the, the gospel, we believe it. We don't have to say anything and we're saved. Isn't that great? That's the parallel. That's what's going on there. Now, here's an interesting note, an interesting side note. The Israelites kept the brazen image of the serpent for 750 years as an idol to worship. Can you believe that? And King Hezekiah finally brought an end to it by destroying it. Isn't that just like people? I mean, I'm so glad that there's not a piece of the cross or somebody found Christ's robe or whatever. Everybody be worshiping it. All you have to do is find a knot in your tree on your front yard and say, oh, it's Jesus, and everybody from all over the world wants to come and bow down to it. That's... Idiocy. Anyway, I found this in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 3 through 4. He says, now Hezekiah was a good king. You can see that in verse 3. And he says, and he, talking about Hezekiah, did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places, broke down the sacred pillars, and cut down the Asherah, he also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the son of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. How about that? Huh? They were worshiping Nehushtan. Can you all say that? It's fun to say. Nehushtan. Well, what is Nehushtan? Here it is right here. Nehushtan was the name of the snake, a word that sounded like Hebrew bronze, snake, and an unclean thing. This is by uh, J.F. Walford and R.B. Zuck, Dallas Theological Seminary, Bible Knowledge Commentary. This is what they were talking about. I mean, it, it was talking about a snake. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I've known about this lifting uh, Moses lifting up the serpent on a pole and how if they looked at it, they would be saved. And that's a parallel to Christ being lifted up on a pole. But I never really liked it that much. I didn't like Christ being compared to a serpent. The serpent, sometimes the, the, the Satan is called a serpent. And there's, uh, what is it that deceives the, uh, Eve, the serpent and everything? Now, I don't want anyone to say anything. I don't want you to raise your hand. But I want you to think for just a moment. Put your thinking cap on. It is appropriate that it was a serpent. Can you figure out why? 
Just think. Don't say anything. Just I'll give you a minute to think. It used to offend me. It doesn't offend me anymore. See if you can figure it out on your own. If you knew 2 Corinthians 5.21, you'd know the answer. Pete knows it. That's why he's grinning. For Christ, who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf. When Christ was on the cross, it was as if he was a serpent because he became sin for our, on our behalf. Isn't that something? I finally, it doesn't bother me anymore. Here you have the Son of God who was perfect. But when He was bearing our sins, it would be like Satan was on there. You understand? You got that? Another one is Galatians 3.13. We're pretty close to Galatians. What Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He was cursed. It was as he became... Can you imagine the Son of God who is eternally perfect, hates sin, and became sin so that we might have eternal salvation? You got that now? And that just... When I went to Second Kings, I started getting the picture. I didn't know that they were worshiping that until this morning. And I thought, those stupid Jews. And what I need? We all have idols. We all worship things. We still let, can get distracted and let things come in. But that's just human nature that they started taking. I can't hear. Fifty years and all, and then as the Asherah were images that the people would bow down and the same time. They were bowing down and worshiping something. Worshiping. You know what they did? They blurred the creator creation distinction. Do you understand what it talks about? This is something that we never do. That's special than the creator. It's all and my If they were there for Noah's Ark, they have enough money. They'd go over there and they would spend $2 million piece of supposed the ark and put it in some kind of urn or jar and have all their... Let's worship it. Let's burn it. Lord, you do a mind about Christ, understand. See, so you you don't have to name your sins or come or anything. You ever speak? used to think, man, that I mean, you would tire something pleasant. No, they got a snake on a no where that came. Okay, and back to cha- uh, Romans chapter ten. Y'all all know where Joel is. It's right before Amos. <laughs> it's right after Hosea. It's between Hosea and Amos. I know y'all call me smart aleck. Only I don't hear it. I'll give you time. Look it up if you need to.
We'll start with verse 28 and not 32 to get the context. Are you all all in Joel chapter 2, verse 28? You might have a pericope there that says something about the promise of future deliverance, something about the kingdom, something about the millennium. How many of you have pericobes? It is not a disease. <laughs> it's not like shingles. <laughs> My pericopes, oh boy, they eat me up. Pericope is just a term for like the heading of the thing here. Verse 28, And it will come about after this, after what he is had described earlier, which is the uh, deliverance of Israel, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. And even on, even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Those days, by the way, is the millennium. This is when Christ will have already returned. By the way, these things are not extant now. They will be when Christ's physical presence will be on earth. And I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Look at this. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now let me explain that to you real fast. What he's describing here about I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke, the sun will be darkened and the moon will be turned into blood. That is all what is referring is going to happen in the tribulational period before the second coming. You can tell that when he says uh, all these things that he described before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, some people get confused about this because this is taught, and I want you to put in your margin here so you'll remember this, put narrow view. Just put narrow view. What we're talking about is the narrow view of the day of the Lord. Because when we were in First and Second Thessalonians, we went in a great deal about the day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord actually is going to begin when Antichrist is revealed, when he makes the contract with Israel, the nation, which they are now a nation, that is when the day of the Lord begins in the broad sense. It starts then. Does anybody know how far it goes? It will go all the way until through, through the millennium until the end of the millennium when there's going to be a new heavens and new earth, that's when the day of the Lord essentially ends. That's the broad view. But what this is giving in Joel is the narrow view. The narrow view, see, a day can mean a lot of things in the Bible. It can be a thousand years, it can be a day, it can be part of a day. This is talking about the literal day that Jesus Christ returns at the second advent. That's the meaning of the day of the Lord here. Write it down somehow so that you'll have whatever you need to put there so you'll understand this. This is the literal day. This is the, the time when Christ is going to break out of heaven on a white horse. And we will be riding behind him. That's the narrow view. In other words, that's the day of the Lord 
the exact day that the Lord is returning. It's not the broad view where it starts when the Antichrist makes a contract with Israel. You got that? Because people get mixed up and they say, how can this be the day of the Lord if it was back there or when it's going to be during the tribulation when it first begins? Well, the broad view is from the beginning of the tribulation to the end of, really the end of, of history of this earth as we know it because we see this in Second Peter that he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. But this is the narrow view. And so these things are going on before. Did you get that columns of smoke? Interesting. Hmm. During the tribulation. Now, verse 32. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord, there's where, there's where we're tying it in to Romans chapter 10. And it will come about that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be, what? Delivered. It's not talking about calling on the Lord to be eternally saved. It's talking about physical deliverance here. We'll be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who what? Escape. See? It's not talking about eternal salvation. It's talking about believers escaping. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So what I told you is Romans 10.13 is a quote from Joel 2.32, which is what? Clearly experiential. Do you see that? And it's not going to change the context when it goes into Romans chapter 10, verse 13. What did Romans chapter 10, verse 13 say? Where is it? Here it is. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now how many people... Well, most people don't even know the difference between positional and experiential. They take everything to be salvific. They take this to be salvific. But when you go to the Old Testament from which it's quoted, you can see that it's clearly what? Experiential. So he's talking about those believers who call upon the Lord, those who, first of all, what? Believed and received God's own righteousness and they submitted themselves unto the Lord as Him being deity, as the Messiah, those are the ones that are going to call on the Lord and they will be delivered. A few more points here before we stop. This is a quote from Zane Hodges, absolutely free on page 193 through 194. He says, In the New Testament... Calling upon the name of the Lord is something only those who are already justified can do. A non-Christian cannot call upon the name of the Lord for assistance because he is not yet born again. Why would you call upon the Lord if you are an unbeliever? You don't even trust in Him anyway. Here's more proof for you. Christians were known for calling out to God as they were appealing to the Lord for assistance and they became known as those who called upon the Lord. This is in Acts chapter 9, verse 21. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those 
who called on his on this name. Who are they talking about? Paul. The last one they thought would ever be saved is who? Paul. Why? Because he was persecuting Christians. When Christ stopped him on the road to Damascus, he was, going, he was on his way to see that more Christians were going to be killed. And so once Paul metanoeod, he repented, he changed his mind about Christ. Of course, after uh, Jesus Christ blinded him, that'll get your attention. He changed his mind. They said, okay, we're going to send Paul down there to you to preach. What? What? Paul? You've got to be kidding. Okay, that's, that's the context here. So he says, And those hearing him continued to be amazed that they were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those, those believers who called on this name, Christ's name, who had come before for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? So here's another illustration of believers calling upon the Lord. Calling upon the name of the Lord and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord are parallel and complement each other. Both require submission to the Lord and both result in deliverance or salvation. And that's the two ways that it is used in Romans chapter 10. First of all, calling, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, there's your, there you have the confessing with your mouth, and calling upon the name of the Lord. What does it take in both of those situations? What do you have to have? Humility. No one will ever be saved apart from being humble. Because God makes war against the arrogant, but He gives grace to the humble. James chapter 4. And so when they are humble and they confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, you don't have to bring Him from heaven. You don't have to bring Him up. All you have to do is, first of all, believe in your heart that He is the Son of God, that He is deity, who He says He, he was. And then when you confess with your mouth that He is Lord, that's the humility. Those are the two things that was necessary for the Jews to survive as a nation. Do you have that? This isn't just about salvific. Now, I only have five minutes left, and now are you ready for the big one? <laughs> People say, oh, well, that's nice. The Jews got saved. Rah, rah, rah. It is exactly the same for us. It's not just believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who went to the cross for your sin. That will save you eternally. But it will not deliver you from a wasted, useless life with all the frustration and disappointment and anger and bitterness and confusion. It will not deliver you from divine discipline. Because if you decide, if you use your volition to where essentially you're not going to confess Him with your mouth as Lord, in other words, you're not going to humble yourself, He, tells you, he gives you all of these Commands. Assemble yourselves together. Study to show thyself approved. Grow in grace and knowledge. All these things. He, these are commands. Yeah, well, yeah, 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 yeah. Talk to the hand. You do that? Guess what? 
you will not be delivered from what's coming. And you'll get essentially the same things that same thing that the Jews got. They got dispersed and were long, lo, no longer a nation. What's going to happen to you, I believe, is worse. Because if you do not humble yourself, you already humbled yourself at salvation, but if you do not humble yourself after salvation and you continue to be arrogant and not confess with your mouth, you don't call upon the name of the Lord, He will take you out. And nobody's saying this. It's like, yeah, go ahead. You can, you can um, defy God. You don't have to be worried about Bible class and all that. You can ignore God and His Word and you'll be just fine. Well, who's, who's, who's giving that line out? The same one that was on the pole, the serpent. We're talking about Satan. And he not only deceives, well, he's not, he doesn't even waste his time with unbelievers. He's, he's already got them in his palm of his hand. This is for believers. This is the message for us. You better get serious about your spiritual life because if you don't, What's ahead of you is not a pretty sight. That's what Paul was doing in Romans chapter 9, trying to keep the Jews as a nation from being destroyed. And now as we go out through the New Testament and other areas, and what my message is to you, and here's yet another place saying this, you try to ignore God and His Word and just see what's on the horizon for you. All those great promises that you will not suffer more than you're able to bear that's not for you that's for a believer that is positive you know first corinthians 10:13 for he will not allow us to suffer more than we can bear but with the suffering he will prevent he will provide a way of escape that is for people who are calling on his name who are humble who is trusting him and who are being obedient but for the ones who are defiant what divine discipline is, is unbearable suffering. That's what's on their plate. And there are some people, even under the most horrible circumstances and suffering, still do not humble. They get more hardened. They get more bitter. And for b believers that do that, God will shorten their life. They're out. And for all, oh, they'll go to heaven, all right. They'll be embarrassed at the judgment seat of Christ. And for all eternity, they're going to be a peon. You want that for all eternity? You could be driving a heavenly Mercedes, whatever that's going to be. Well, of course, we don't need, you know, we won't even need cars. We say, hey, you want to go skate on Saturn rings? Let's go. I don't know how it's going to be. It's going to be fantastic. But anyway. I don't want to be someone in heaven with a little scraper scraping up the heavenly bubble gum off the golden streets. And the decisions that we make now is going to determine what we're going to be. Not Listen, I didn't say where. I said what. You didn't have that choice when you came into this world, did you? But you have that choice going out. And if you understand these things, Hopefully, it's going to hit the afterburner, and you're going to see that time is short. You better get with it. You better start learning and then applying the doctrine. And when you do, you'll never regret it, and you'll have super grace 
blessings on earth, which is just a little slice of the great things that you will have in heaven. I was at a funeral today, and they were talking about one, one man ended it, and he was comforting the husband who had lost his wife. And he says, if you think of Disneyland, you think of the great places on earth that you can go to. He said, that is nothing but squalor compared to what God has for us. The Bible says we can't even comprehend how wonderful it's going to be. But if you decide to be defiant towards God and remain humble, I mean arrogant, and think that you can ignore Him and His Word and there'll be no consequences, what you have left in life is going to be not so pretty. You'll die in panic horribly. Then you'll stand before Jesus Christ in utter shame. And then you will go to heaven. And I don't know if they have garbage in heaven, but if they do, you will see you there. You got it? Let's close. Father, we're so thankful for your mighty word and how when we stop and we analyze it, we put everything in context, we, things start to appear that we didn't see were there. And the message becomes even more powerful that you want to be in our lives. You want us to have a very vibrant relationship with you, that we will depend upon you, that you can show your glory through us. But it can't happen if we're arrogant and we don't trust you. So we pray that you will help us to be malleable, that you will help us that you can farm us and shape us into that vessel that will be honorable to you, that trusts you, and you will show us great and mighty things. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.